As we continue our series on 1 Peter, I want to make sure we're all on the same page. We need to remember as Christians that we believe the Bible is God's inspired word, that it's given to his people to write down. And today I'm going to be speaking on 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 8 to 12. It's a summary of the things we have looked at over the past couple of weeks. Now, my fear as we read the Bible is that we see it as a list of rules instead of what it is. God's inspired word about who he is and what our response should be. So earlier this week, as we read the Bible to our children, Rose and Ezra, we had to start a new Bible storybook. So we let Rose go and choose off the shelf, and she chose this book. And we open it up, and figuring creation's the first story in the Bible. But not in this book. Instead of starting with Scripture, it starts with a description. And this is what it says. God wrote, I love you. He wrote it in the sky and on the earth and under the sea. He wrote his message everywhere because God created everything in this world to reflect like a mirror, to show us what he is like, to help us know him, to make our hearts sing. The way a kitten chases her tail, the way red poppies grow wild, the way a dolphin swims. And God put it into words too and wrote it in a book called the Bible. Now, some people think the Bible is a book of rules, telling you what you should and shouldn't do. The Bible certainly does have some rules in it. They show how life works best. But the Bible isn't mainly about you and what you should be doing. It's about God and what he has done. Other people think the Bible is a book of heroes, showing you people you should copy. The Bible does have some heroes in it. But, as you'll soon find out, most of the people in the Bible aren't heroes at all. They make some big mistakes, sometimes on purpose. They get afraid and run away. At times, they are downright mean. No, the Bible isn't a book of rules or a book of heroes. The Bible is most of all a story. It's an adventure story about a young hero who comes from a far country to win back his lost treasure. It's a love story about a brave prince who leaves his palace, his throne. He leaves everything to rescue the one he loves. It's like the most wonderful of fairy tales that has come true in real life. Wow. A description of the Bible written for children that gets right to the heart of why the Bible is so important. It's a reminder that it's not rules and heroes only, but it is the story of Jesus himself, of God revealing who he is. And as we recognize who Jesus is, as we see that he is the son of God who created the world, and as we respond to that, we realize that Jesus made it possible for us to be in relationship with God. Now we have a choice. We can either follow the truth and believe, or ignore it and go on our own way. Now, many of you probably are going, when's he going to get to 1 Peter? Where is the Bible? You see, 1 Peter is written to the church in Asia Minor. They're believers who are suffering persecution. The reason I shared that introduction to the Bible is because it's what the believers 
in Asia Minor felt and knew. They knew the story of Jesus and they had surrendered everything, not to follow a list of rules, but to follow God himself. Peter writes this to encourage, to allow them some instruction. Here's what fruit should look like. It's not a do this and don't do that list. It's a description of what a believer in Christ should pour out from themselves. Last week, Pastor Kevin spoke on the idea that as Christians, we submit to authority because God placed them there. And in marriage relationships, we should look a certain way as Christians. And all of this was because as we honor God, we learn who he is. We reflect that. And as those around us see, they too might glorify God. Today's verse sums up what Pastor Kevin taught on last week. We find a list of virtues and how we should be responding. I'm going to read now from 1 Peter 3, 8 through 12. And it says, Finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. For to this you were called, that you may obtain a blessing. For whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. This section is a summary in Peter's own words of how Christians should live. But he doesn't leave it at his own instruction. He pulls us back to Psalm 34, which we heard during the service earlier. He pulls us back and says, I'm saying this, but it's supported by the Bible, by Old Testament scripture. Now, we must remember the purpose of, you, of these virtues. As I said, it's not a list saying, do this, do this, do this, but don't do that. Instead, it is what should be a natural response to belief in Jesus. We live our lives that God might be glorified. Now, some of you might have heard a saying that's attributed to St. Francis of Assisi. It says, preach the gospel at all times. When necessary, use words. Now, as we look at St. Francis' life, we can't find anywhere that he said this. But we do understand that from his life, it's kind of in line with what he said. Here's what St. Francis does say. It is no use walking anywhere to preach unless our walking is our preaching. There's this tension in sharing the gospel. We use words and we preach and we teach we share verbally what God has put on our hearts, what he has revealed to us through his spirit. But it doesn't end there. Words do not do everything. We must also live it. We see this tension in the New Testament of works don't save us, but faith without works is dead. We have faith and that brings us salvation. But we act out that faith in our daily lives. 
So what does this look like? What does this faith look like? Peter gives us a description. It's a life filled with the Holy Spirit, empowered to reflect the descriptions given, the list given. Now, I will read the list again. But so many times in the Bible, we see list after list. One of the most famous is probably the fruit of the Spirit. Paul in Galatians 5, verse 22 says, But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, self-control. Against such things, there is no law. Now, as I read that, maybe you went, oh, that's a long list. But Peter gives a different list, a list that supports these virtues, but in a different explanation. He says, finally, all of you, that's all of us who believe, have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. For to this you were called, that you may obtain a blessing. The risk of lists, as I said, is we kind of gloss over it. We see this list and we read through it instead of pausing to look at it. I risk that as well. And so I'm going to slow us down a little bit. We're going to start with unity of mind. This might be a confusing concept to us. It's the only virtue in the list that only applies to believers with believers. The unity of mind is a believer with another believer should be united in mind. Now, as you look around Markham or wherever you live, you probably see many denominations. You see different Christian organizations in schools and home groups, extra, extra church items, people running their own things, churches running their own things. And it gets confusing. It might seem like there's no unity. And the way you act out your faith might be different than the way I act my faith out. The way you interpret scripture might vary slightly from the way I do. And so how can we have unity of mind? There's two ways, two important ways that we must take into our heart. And the first of that is the Holy Spirit. Romans 8:14 says, for all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. You see, when we believe, we receive God's Spirit and we are made His children. That unites us. We see in a family unit, there is usually some unity. But in the church, there should be full unity of mind because we are given one spirit, God's spirit, and he dwells in us. And when that happens, 1 Corinthians 2.16 says that believers are given the mind of Christ. So we have God himself in us and we are given the mind of Christ to share and unify. As I said, we might differ in the way we do things, but it's the motives that show our unity. If you are a believer, your motives for all you do should be to glorify God in what you say, in what you think, in how you act. You see, Jesus prays for this for his church. In John 17, what's known as the high priestly prayer, Jesus goes to the Father and he prays that his followers would be united, that they wouldn't be broken apart, but that they would be united in belief in him. The church, not just Unionville Alliance, the church around the world, all believers of all times are given the Holy Spirit 
and the mind of Christ. And we are given these things to unite us, that though we express them differently, we head toward the same goal, that God would be glorified in all the world. The next three characteristics are, are so intimately interwoven that they're hard to separate. We're told to have sympathy. We're told to have brotherly love and a tender heart. Sympathy, as described by Scripture, is the idea that Christians mourn with those who mourn and rejoice with those who rejoice. We walk alongside each other, and that's part of the reason we have life groups here at Unionville Alliance, so that we're not just learning Scripture together, which is key, but that we're doing life together. We're walking through the valleys and the mountaintops. We're praying for each other. We're loving each other. We're caring for each other in everything. Those are what we do as sympathy. And that comes out of brotherly love in a tender heart. If we do not have a soft heart toward those around us, we do not show love. And we cannot show sympathy. Tenderheartedness comes out in kindness. It comes out in serving. It comes out in loving. It comes out in sympathy. And all of these things, along with the knowledge of who Jesus is and what he's done, leads us to humility. The last virtue on the list is a humble mind. It's the opposite of what the world tells us to be. The world says, puff yourself up. Present yourself as bigger, better. Lower others that you might look better. But scripture says the opposite. Humble yourself. Humble your mind. But why? You see, all of these things come from the Holy Spirit. They're not of ourselves. They're of God. Ezekiel 36, 26 to 27 says, And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. You see, the Holy Spirit brings us sympathy, brotherly love, tenderheartedness as he transforms our very souls, our very persons, who we are. And that humility is a recognition of where we get these things, of where we find salvation itself. The Holy Spirit, he lays on our hearts the, the knowledge and the understanding that I can't rescue myself. I didn't rescue myself yet, and I will not be able to at any point in my life. The only way to be saved is through Jesus Christ. And if he's the one doing the work, which he is, then there's nothing in me to brag about, only in Christ. You see, I no longer have to try and earn God's favor. Neither do you. We don't have to do the right thing, follow the right rules, walk the right way, wear the right clothes, eat the right things. That won't get us to God. What we need to do is trust in Jesus, who paid the price that we owe for our sins, that we might know him and be with him forever. It's not about moping around and, and having to give everything and, and it's such a struggle. That can be the case. 
But the reality is it's about accepting a free gift and allowing our lives to reflect the freedom that we have in Christ. And that scene, as Peter continues, he says, do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless, for to this you were called. We were called to bless that we might obtain a blessing. Now, the blessings of a believer are immense, but we have to know what a blessing is. I'm not talking worldly blessing. I'm not talking about the idea that we should have health and wealth and well-being. Peter's writing to a church that is suffering persecution, that has lost business, family, friends, everything for the sake of the gospel. And so there's no way that I can say that the blessing of God is that everything will be perfect. It's not what scripture teaches. What it does teach is the blessing that we have received. The blessing we have received is that we have God's grace, his love, and a hope that will be fulfilled when we die. That our physical death is not the end, but the beginning of eternal life with Christ. The beginning of no more pain, no more suffering. We have a taste here of eternal life. We have new life in Christ. But so much more when we go to be with him in glory. And out of these blessings, we bless. Now, when I read this, I got a little uneasy. I've heard many descriptions of blessing people. Not bad things. Things like I gave this person a little bit of money to help them out to be a blessing. Or I took someone out for a meal. Or maybe you've offered to take care of someone's children that they might have a night off. Those are blessings, but they're not the blessing we're talking about. They're not what Peter are instructing us to do. Those are byproducts of the blessing. You see, the blessing, the way we bless others, is by praying for salvation. That might seem weird, because we think intangible things. But the reality is, the blessing we have received is salvation. We are saved from the punishment we deserve. And we are to share that salvation, even with those even with those who are evil toward us or who revile us, to those who hurt us or persecute us or cause us suffering. We also bless those who don't believe but are good to us. And we bless those who believe and are walking alongside us in faith. Again, the blessing we're talking about is praying for salvation and deeper relationship with Jesus. They're not tangible blessings but they're blessings that will last for all eternity as we share the hope that we have found, as we show Jesus to those around us. We become the hands, the feet, and the tongue of Christ as we pray for and love on people and their families and those dear to them. We love them as Christ loves us. Now, if sharing the hope you have isn't enough, if you're not motivated by the idea of sharing life and hope, of allowing the Holy Spirit to glorify God through you, we read what Psalm 34 says, because that's not just what we gain. This is what it says. Whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. 
Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. We're reminded that good days and love of life are only found in Christ. That we can pursue happiness on our own, but it will always be fleeting. No matter how much money, no matter how many friends, no matter how good a job you have. That's not sustainable. Because true happiness, true love of life and good days come from following Jesus. True joy in the midst of all things, including suffering is seen as we pursue God. And we get the joy and the reassurance that God's eyes are on the righteous. That's you and that's me if we believe in Jesus. It's not the person who does the right thing and says the right thing. It's the person who has accepted Jesus' sacrifice and taken his righteousness as their identity. It's Christ's righteousness in us, not our own righteousness. And so God sees us when we take on that righteousness and he hears our prayers. We're not praying to an empty sky. We're praying to the King of Kings and Lord of Lords, God himself, who sees us and hears us and dwells in us. And how can we keep from sharing this with the world? How could we not allow the Holy Spirit to transform us so far that we can't help but sharing the hope that we have? That we can't help but shining Christ in our daily lives? Yes, we need to have unity of mind. We need to have sympathy. We need to have brotherly love and a tender heart and a humble mind. But we live this in the context of community. We live this out in our church. We live this out with other believers who may attend other churches. And we live these things out toward all we come in contact. Those who do evil to us and those who bless us. And we do this that God might be glorified. Not that I might be glorified, that God might be glorified. You see, as I said from the beginning, the Bible isn't just a list of rules or hero stories to copy. It is God's very word given to us. It reveals who God is and it reveals how we should respond if we believe. And the reason we're given this list of items, of virtues, of rules, is not to condemn us, but to show us the difference between human response to God and spirit-inspired response to God. Because when we have God in us, our motives and our virtues in our life should reflect Jesus. We need to be united in mind, sympathetic, loving, tender-hearted, and humble that we might see God glorified, not just by us, but as people watch us, as people hear us, as they see our lives, that they would look and say, the only way that's possible is through Jesus. And they would glorify God in spirit and in truth. Let's pray. God, you're a good God. You have richly blessed your people with free grace that you offer the forgiveness of sins at no cost to ourselves. Thank you that we don't have to earn your favor. Thank you that I do not have to be good enough to get in to heaven. 
Thank you that Jesus, you came to earth and took the punishment that I deserve, that I might have life. Lord, we pray that you would open our eyes to you and what you're doing, that you would reveal yourself to us, that you would transform us from the inside out. In Jesus' name, amen. This morning, we're going to celebrate communion. Communion is a time where we're reminded of what Christ did for us, that sacrifice that I've been talking about, the reason we act and speak and think the way we do. We commemorate the greatest gift in history, past, present, and future. God the Son took on flesh. He humbled himself and took the form of a servant, living a perfect life. But he was tortured. He was murdered, hung on a cross, paying the price for our sins that we might have life. And he conquered the grave when he rose again so that we might know our bodies may die, but that's not the end. We can live in eternity with Jesus. Now, I'm a sinner. You're a sinner. The Bible tells us every person who's ever existed has sinned meaning they've broken God's laws and made him sad. And nothing I do, nothing I say, nothing I think will ever put me right with God. Not from myself. I cannot pay the price I deserve because the price I deserve is death, separation from God. And that would be final if it wasn't for Jesus. Because Jesus took the punishment that we deserve. He came the perfect, spotless Lamb of God, deserving no death, and yet took death upon Himself, bearing our sins that we might live. That's what communion is about. It's not about Christians standing on a pedestal saying, I'm separate from you lowly people. It's a bunch of humans, broken humans who recognize their need for a Savior. It's broken humans hitting their knees before the cross of Christ, saying, God, I can't do it, but I accept that you've already done it. Communion takes us back to that place and reminds us of who Jesus is and what he has done. This morning, I'm going to give us a minute to reflect. It's a minute to sit there and think about what's being said to evaluate whether you believe it or not, to be honest with yourself at where you're at. Do you believe in God? Do you believe in God but not reflect what that means? Are you doing well? What areas might you need to improve on? Not on your own, but with the help of the Holy Spirit. If you haven't accepted Jesus' forgiveness and grace in your life before, this would be a great opportunity to do that as we reflect on who he is and what he's done. All you need to do is acknowledge that you're broken and sinful and in need of a savior. As we do regularly as Christians, you ask God for forgiveness and accept his grace, receiving the life he's offered. It's that simple and that difficult, but you can do it right there where you're at. Let's go to God and reflect on what he's been saying to us.
as we enter our time of communion, we're going to listen to the words of Paul. In 1 Corinthians 11, 23 to 26, Paul says, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. We're going to celebrate communion together. I would ask that if you have not chosen to follow Jesus, you simply spend this time reflecting. But if you have chosen to accept the forgiveness and grace offered by God, even if you just made that decision today for the very first time, we welcome you to join us, to participate with us as we remember Jesus' death and resurrection.